Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm not sure whether I should, uh, in San Francisco, usually we start by inviting people who are here for the first time. But since I'm sort of here, <laughs> I'm not sure whether you should, I should thank you. Maybe I'll do both. Uh, thank you for having me here. It's nice to be back. And then, is there anyone here for the first time? Well, welcome. Can I say just a quick word? Of course. Um, you so might have to stand up, though. Yes. So it's a real pleasure to have um, Paul with us today. Um, and those that weren't here early, uh, a few minutes ago um, and don't know who he is, he is the uh, former abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, a longtime abbot, and um, continues to be the uh, Dharma teacher there uh, at City Center and also at Tassajara. Um, and uh, we're so grateful that he was able to come and join us here this week. So thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. My intention is to talk, and I'm used to having an amplification, uh, so if my voice gets soft, you can't hear me back there, just put your hand up. It'll be a signal for me to speak up. Is it okay so far? Yes. Yeah. Okay. My intention is to talk this morning on a, for those who are familiar with this style of Zen practice, a well-used phrase from Dogen Zenji, the finder in Japan. The study way, the study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. study the way, you know, each of us is making our way, following our way, discovering our way through this human life. When I was about six years old, I lived a block away from a large church, and I would go there each morning to attend Mass. And, uh, the memory I have of it is that the, the vastness of the space, the quiet, the murmuring of the row of elderly ladies sitting dressed in black at the altar rail, murmuring the rosary, the incense. That's my memory of a six-year-old mind. Uh, a few years later, when I was about 11, once when I was sitting in Latin class, uh, I noticed that if I let my vision go wide, it's like my mind shifted. I could stop thinking. When I was about 22, 23, uh, 
living in Tokyo, a good, someone who had become a good friend gave me a book about Zen uh, called The Iron Flute. And as I started to read it, I thought and felt, this is it, this is it, this is it. And now, a few more years later, I find myself sitting here, dressed in a robe similar to Shakyamuni Buddha's, a robe similar to what they wore in the Tang Dynasty in China, and a under robe similar to what they wear in Japan. And maybe I could call all of that my way. Yeah. Did I plan it out when I was six? No. <laughs> could I have even imagined <laughs> in my wildest dreams, in my childhood, that this was the trajectory of my life? those images occurred to me uh, this morning as I was thinking about the way. You know, you know when, when we look at it thoughtfully, we could say, well, and, and if you look at the original Japanese, when Dogen uses what we're translated as the way, it's the Tao. You know, that unfolding of existence. And then we could say almost happens despite our engrossment in what we want and what we don't want, what we're afraid of and what we yearn for. Uh, and the exploration and discovery of coming into harmony with that. And in the heritage of Buddhism, uh, this phrase, the Tao, that was adopted from Taoism in China was the origin in India was Marga, the path. The path of the one who practices and that which is practiced. And when we engage it intellectually, we can say, well, there are, there's the example and the teachings of the sages. You know, those who, with great dedication and cultivation of insight and compassion, exemplified and articulated what it is to engage this human life that allows it to um, not simply be in harmony with the human condition and the nature of what is, but to find a way to flourish. How can the human life we are, how can it flourish? 
Is it a matter of getting out of our own way? <laughs> getting out of the way we construct in terms of what should and should not be, happen? Uh, is it a matter of refining our ideas about that? so that they embody the wisdom and compassion of the sages. Is it a matter of having clarity around the principles and the teachings and then the courage to live them? Is it courage? Is it dedication? What is it that makes a six-year-old get up out of bed while the rest of their family is sleeping and walk a block away and go into a big empty building smelling of incense? What's happening in a human consciousness that an 11-year-old pauses and experiences a shift in consciousness? I read a study once done in the late 40s by um, a psychologist, and he asked about 400 high school students, had they ever had a religious experience? And over 60% of them said yes. Maybe when we look at high school students spilling out the school, we're not thinking, oh, they're coming from their religious experiences. (laughs) Maybe when we notice how they dress, their choice of music, (laughs) what they do on social media. (laughs) We're not thinking, uh, ah, this is based on um, the deep insights they've had about this human life. All this to say, There's something obvious and at the same time mysterious about how we're living our lives. They're obviously in the throes of being teenagers. I remember my daughter saying to me when she was 15, she said, you have to understand, Dad, at my age, the most important thing is to be cool. (laughs) <laughs> and to be seen as cool by your peers. Okay. How susceptible we are to the causes and conditions, the context that we're in. I came here on Thursday. You know, I've been here a couple of times before, but 
in 2015, probably like three or four years before that. But as I was sitting here uh, watching, one thing you learn in the Zen world, everywhere you go, the Zen center has its own way of doing things. Like just before I came down to give the talk, I said, hey Tim, how do we do it here? Well, we'd come in like this, and you're sitting at the back, not the front. Um, so I was watching. Okay, what are the details? And then my mind, being like most people's mind, was filling in the blanks. That way in which we see a few details and then we think we know what's going on. You see two or three people do it a certain way and you think, oh, that's how it is. Maybe they've just arrived. That way a Zen center creates an expression, a particular expression of the way. And then the challenge for each of us to not simply ignore the particulars, but in another interesting way to not get lost in compliance. That this, the other part of the challenge is pay attention and discover the embodied wisdom in the forms. But then the other part of the challenge is discover authentic being. What is it to bow? What is it to... Um, pay attention to the notice that most appropriately as your your fingertips are at the level of your nose this far apart your elbows are somewhere between here and here and you bow more from the hara than from the heart What is the embodied wisdom and compassion of that? That's Zen practice. What is it to bow and connect to another human being? What is it to bow to another human being as Buddha? And then there's wonderful cons. What is it to bow to a very imposing statue of someone who, as far as we can tell, repeatedly said, don't make statues of me. (laughs) That's not what this is about. if it were sincere Zen students, would we ignore that (laughs) statue? (laughs) 
I know an esteemed Zen teacher in Japan, not in the Soto tradition, but um, he doesn't have Buddha statues in his center, in his temple, for that reason. As far as he's concerned, if that's what Shakyamuni said, that's what I'm going to do. Is he being obstinate or is he being authentic? Following the path, discovering the path, embodying the path. There is some diligence and dedication and discipline and giving over and there's some which I think uh, most of us are well capable of some skepticism hmm really? is that so? Let me explore it and discover it in my own uh, experience of this practice. And there's some mystery to it. We've always been on the path. We entered this life with a deep impulse to start breathing. a deep impulse to uh, clear out our system so that we could receive uh, nourishment to keep our body alive. To see, to hear, to feel, to touch. There's a line, a couple of lines from a poem that I think carries some of this. The poet's name is um, Javier Selecto. I would add, these are not his words, but I'll put them in front. The path, those are my words, a short journey to everywhere distant. Take nothing except gifts. Take remembrances of kindness. Take the mistakes that set you on your way. To stay in touch with something that's true, something in our being. Maybe to ask yourself, Are you one of the 60% of high school students that had a religious experience? That psychologist then went on to categorize them. I can't remember the four categories he came up with. There's an intriguing uh, assessment of being a teenager. 
what is it you're staying true to as you live your life? When does it get overtaken by what are experienced as the practical necessities of keeping your life together? How does um, the emotions, the yearnings, the anxieties, the aversions that arise for you, how, how are they engaged? Are they in opposition to your way? Or as Javier says, Take the mistakes that set you on your path. Dogen Zenji says, to study the way is to study the self. The, the verb there in Japanese translates more like the way you would study the piano. <coughs> you study playing the piano by playing the piano. You study the way by being the way. You study the self by watching selfing, by feeling selfing, by noticing the content of mind, the patterns of mind. studying what is it like when you feel like you're being yourself and sometimes we study that by noticing what's it like when you feel like you're not being yourself okay I just said that because I sort of felt that was what was being expected of me right now. Or however you'll, you'll find yourself in, motivated by being in compliance. And then what does it feel like when you feel like you're being yourself? Does it happen more for you when you're with others or more for you when you're by yourself? And then in the context of practice, how do both of those instruct you in the engagement of sasana? What is it to be body in a way that enables some deep sense of being to be embodied? What is it to engage the breath? 
how does that become a foundation for engaging the incredible complexity of our psychology, our emotional patterns, the varieties of things and concerns that we create within our mind. To study the way is to study the self. And then I would hope, in what I'm saying, I would hope it would give you some kind of, huh, that's a little weird. (laughs) Being alive is a little weird. Could those high school students tumbling out into the schoolyard, could 60% of them had just had a religious experience? As they snatch their, their phones out of their purses and get back online. Instagramming their friends all 5,000 of them. (laughs) (laughs) Of details of their life that most of us would rather nobody knew about. (laughs) That amazing shift now that privacy is kind of irrelevant. And it's that oddity, it's that mystery, it's that uh, something to marvel at. There's there's a way, and and to to my mind, Javier Saledo catches it in this short journey to everywhere distant. when we look at ourselves being ourselves, individually and collectively, Uh, when we look at it in a big picture, it's an intriguing event to witness. I would say it's more something to marvel at A couple of weeks ago, I was with my three-year-old grandson, and uh, in a quiet moment, he shared with me, he said, you know, you're quite good at playing with children. (laughs) He he said with all the authority of a wise person, I've been watching you, I've been just seeing how you're doing, you're doing okay. You know, I just want to reassure you of that. <laughs> so keep it up, you know, and keep at it. <laughs> and then, of course, not long afterwards, he totally fell apart because it was time to go to bed. <laughs>
heritage of Zen practice is that, that we pick up this great matter of being alive. But not, um, not simply as some affliction that we have to cure, you know, or some struggle that we have to bear stoically. as if it was a great punishment that somehow or another we deserve. You know, one of the great gifts of the Buddha way is this deep, deep compassion. This deep, deep veneration of all life. And to study the self, to study this mystery that incredibly selfish as we are, we're often not very good to ourselves. Incredibly selfish and self-preoccupied as we usually are, it takes quite a bit of study to discover how to nourish the self, how to... How to um, how to marvel, how to appreciate, how to find moments of pause and ease, how to realize that the moment we're in has an amazing quality to it. Maybe it's not the moment we wanted, Maybe there's lots of moments we've had that we would prefer, or moments we would hope to have. But, um, how do we cultivate a quality of being that's expressed by the Sanskrit word shraddha, which translates as trust, confidence, and faith, not faith in, um, I've never experienced this, but I have faith that it's so. Faith that arises out of trust and the experience of being alive. It's interesting in the human condition. When we experience our experience, two important things happen for us. We start to trust that version of ourselves. When we're willing to be ourselves, the authenticity of that is something we trust. And it's not something you can abstractly or conceptually um, assert. It's in the living of it that something happens. It's like when you're thirsty and you drink water, you trust 
that water quenches thirst. As an academic notion, you might completely agree. But it doesn't, it's still in the realm of concept. It doesn't have the conviction of tasting and experiencing. I mean, you've tasted and experienced all sorts of people, kind of all sorts of notions. But you've had yours. And staying true to that isn't some kind of selfish arrogance. In some ways, um, when we pay close attention, it's humbling. You know? It's as humbling as coming somewhere and seeing a few details and then thinking you know what's going on. No. Actually, all I know is that experience, that experience, and that experience. But I can trust them because they have been experienced. There's a Buddhist teaching that says um, there's three forms of consciousness. You know, and, and one is uh, chitta. And that's our usual cognitive discernment. You know, the way we would normally talk about knowing. You know. We watch the news. You know, and then we know what's happening to the schoolboys trapped in a cave in Thailand. Or we know about uh, Donald Trump's visit to Europe. But that mind adds a lot of commentary to the details it gets. That mind takes this data point and this data point and fills in everything in between. And then the second kind of consciousness is Hridaya, same as we chant in the Heart Sutra, Hridaya Sutra. Um, that more emotional, heartfelt connection heartfelt experience. That that way in which we have an experience (coughs) and then the experience of itself is neutral and then we color it with an emotion. And within our own subjectivity if it's an intense emotion the experience is much more true the idea we have about it is much more true. If I strongly dislike this, well then, my thought about it is all the truer for me. Um, And then our positive emotions, you know, our gratitude, our kindness, our humor, our um, compassion, They color the same details 
in a way. And as we study the self in the process of studying the path, to study that, what are my emotional patterns? When I'm confronted with not knowing what's going to happen next, do I get excited or do I get afraid? Do I try to look good or do I just go, oh well, let's see how it all happens. And then the third kind of consciousness is um, the Sanskrit word is vridda, which is the consciousness that's cultivated by experiencing. And in a way, that's what I've been trying to talk about. The consciousness that's cultivated by experiencing. When something difficult has happened in your life, the death of a loved one, the end of a long relationship, losing your job, difficulties with your health. And you've allowed yourself to feel them deeply, what that brought up. You've allowed yourself to acknowledge, life is not under my control. And not in a begrudging, resentful way, but in a way that acknowledges the truth of our existence, that finds shraddha right there. That kind of experiencing um, teaches, it creates a consciousness that knows insight. It creates consciousness, to use the language I was using earlier, that's the fruit of religious experience. And how do we let that, the religious experiences we've had, I would say we've all had them. To my mind, part of how I marvel at that uh, study was, what about the other 40%? (laughs) Didn't they realize they had them? Were they trying to think, yeah, but that wasn't a religious experience. I was just playing football, or I was just, you know, talking with my friends in the toilet, in the bathroom. a disciple of the way. To follow the way is to follow that vritta, that 
can be realized in ourselves, in each other, and in the great sages. This is, uh, this is what we bow to. We could have a lively discussion as to whether or not we need a statue to do that. It is part of the Zen tradition. I don't mean to cause controversy, but it is, it is part of the Zen tradition. Oh, maybe I do. <laughs> it is part of the Zen tradition in Japan and China to represent the suchness of the way with um, sometimes just a pen and ink drawing of bamboo or, or a stark or a flower or, you know. each moment's potential to, to stimulate realization to stimulate Buddha. And then what is it to sit in a way that stimulates Buddha? Oh, I'll sit down and then I will try to change what's happening into what should be happening. Is that it? Are you trying to create the should you, the should you, the person you should be in contrast to the person you are? Is that the way? genius from Ireland, Oscar Wilde, and he said, you might as well be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. (laughs) (laughs) What is it to sit and experience what's already happening? The being you already are. The world you live in. And then this is the Genjo koan. This is the koan. This is the inquiry of being alive. And the phrase to study the way comes from that koan. Okay. So I'll stop there. Um, And then I'm going to offer a workshop in the afternoon. And my thought is this. a workshop's like this. Okay, here's the notion. Here's how we're going to attempt to experience it. And then here's how we're going to process the experience. But in some ways, that's the breadth of our practice. We sit down with some notion of what it is to 
to be zazen. And then we have an experience, we relate to it in whatever way we relate to it, and then to be informed by that. And as I was saying, not just in the realm of chitta, in the realm of ideas, but in the realm of insight into human conditioning, and then we could say going beyond the experience of not just being caught up in our own habit patterns. We can go beyond Okay, so any questions about all of that? I have one for you. Um, what about your religious experience? Or maybe to put it in more Zen terms, um, moments of presence. And I would give it an interesting twist for you. What's the earliest one you can remember? Very open when we're kids. Anyone dare to answer that? Please. I'm not going to answer that, but I'm going to throw in a sideways here. I think one of the unique things about Buddhism in the West is that it's not the religion that we were raised in. And so in one way or another, all of us are converts. And I think that makes a difference in practice versus how Buddhism is existing in Asia today, where it's kind of moribund. And so I would suggest that perhaps the earliest religious experience that put us on the path to conversion might be an interesting one also. Um, thank you. I, I would agree with what you said. And I would add to it that um, as, as I portrayed it in the way I did, that when we're talking about the path, you know, the Tao, Marga, um, that we're talking about something within Buddhism and um, maybe we could even say, as Suzuki Roshi did and A.H. Dogen said, my path is more fundamental than Zen. And then Suzuki Roshi went on to say, but for convenience, you can call me a Zen priest. <laughs> no? and, and if you think about it, um, we, we do, in, in our, our uh, sincerity, we reconstruct a, a certain expression of the heritage of Zen Buddhism. But I would say it's essential that we find within it authentic expression of the path that's more fundamental than Zen. Or maybe more particularly, Zen Buddhism as an organized religion. I, I think, to me, the Zen heritage 
combines the two of those. And, and the, this, this structure, indeed, I think being a convert, being able to go beyond compliance, unexamined compliance with some tradition. Uh, but I also think it's wonderful, you know. I had a student once who was from Israel, so she grew up Jewish. And she practiced at Zen Center in San Francisco for about five years. And then her parents were amazed when she went back to Israel. She was much more observant of Jewish tradition. And they said, what is this? You know, you go off to a Zen Center and you come back and you're a more observant Jew? <laughs> and, and I would say that finding authentic being uh, helped her see, oh, that which I was blindly complying to has a richness that I can uh, be nourished by. Anyone else? In what age were you when that happened? Uh, maybe 12. Mm. I also had a horrible accident at that time. Yes, a horrible accident yeah. at that age? Mm -hmm. mm. Before or after you saw the cloud? I don't know if you do it here, but in, in San Francisco we uh, do what we call way-seeking mind talks. And it's an interesting notion because um, what do you say, what do you present as what you might call the, uh, the building blocks of your life? You know? um, and then as you said, you know, I, I had this very difficult, painful thing happened. And then I had this um, extraordinary <coughs> moment. And do they, um, do they have a relationship? You know, was it utterly coincidental or was, no? Sometimes when our world is deeply shaken, painful and difficult as it is, some things also can be shaken loose. Okay, anyone want the last word? Please. Yeah. Sure. I was.
Lovely. Thank you. So sometimes I think it's helpful to, for us to remember that moments of presence don't have to be grandiose or fantastic or you know, they can be just part of everyday life. So I'd like to end with this poem. It's by Anne Hillman. It's called We Look With Uncertainty. To my mind, I hope to your mind too, it bears some relevance to what I was just trying to talk about. We look with uncertainty beyond the old choices for clear-cut answers. Beyond the old choices for clear-cut answers to a softer, more permeable aliveness which is every moment at the brink of death. For something new is being born in us if we but let it. We stand at a new doorway, awaiting that which comes, daring to be human, vulnerable to the beauty of existence, learning to love. Thank you. <laughs>